Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, we're one week into our first ever Flash Fiction Contest, and we've had some pretty great entries so far. If that's any indication, we may have a tough call on our hands come judging time. And you, children of the night, have the chance to make that decision even harder by submitting a story of your own. Head over to TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest to take a peek at our muse, an 1898 painting by Swiss artist Arnold Boeklin entitled Plague. Soak in the image, let the darkness take you, then settle down by the fireside, sharpen your favorite quill, put pen to parchment, or, you know, open a new word doc or whatever, and weave us a chilling tale of 1,000 words or less that's inspired by the stain the image of plague leaves on your retinas. If your story is selected, you'll not only win $25 and the bragging rights of being our first-ever contest winner, but you'll also have your story narrated by one of our excellent narrators and featured on an episode of the show. Not bad, right? For more details on what we're looking for and to submit your story, head over to, you guessed it, TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest. Our contest closes June 15th. The clock is ticking, children of the night. Speaking of firsts for Tales to Terrify, earlier this week, we also sent out our very first issue of The Grimoire, 
the official Tales to Terrify newsletter. In it, we featured everything from a brief dive into a legendary Japanese horror author, to a chilling piece of art, to a glimpse into what the staff here at Tales to Terrify is reading, watching, and listening to. Not to mention a terrific interview with one of our BFFs and regular narrator here at Tales to Terrify, Matt Dovey. We've already got a few things cooking up for our June issue, so if you haven't signed up already, you can do just that over at our website. One last piece of housekeeping before we set sail this week on our dark voyage. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout-out to our amazing patrons. In particular, some of our longest-running supporters, Robert G. Paisley, Jamie C. Hardy, and Ari J. Jockey. You're absolutely amazing. I can't thank you enough for your support. You're the lifeblood coursing through these dark veins, keeping this infernal beast alive and stalking. I'd also like to extend a warm welcome and heartfelt thank you to a couple of our newest patrons, Michael Delwing and Lisa Katz. Thanks for joining us on this descent into madness we call Tales to Terrify. If you'd like to count yourself among this esteemed company of patrons, we'd love your support over at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We've got perks for every dark appetite. And speaking of, for you lucky patrons, our first batch of merch is ordered and on its way, and should be headed to you not long after that. I'll post some updates on Patreon soon. And if you're not a patron and don't want to miss out, now's a great time to join. Okay, that's enough housekeeping for one night. But before we get into our fiction, I've got a short little tale to share that I came across while planning our trip. Figured it would be the perfect little bite for our first stop for our first stop as we once again step out the door into darkness. It was an overcast May afternoon in downtown Vancouver, British Columbia, the chill wind carrying with it the scent of the harbor. Rolling into downtown at the tail end of the lunch rush, the seats of the 98 B-Line bus were peppered with people. Late risers headed into work, elderly shoppers on their way to the mall or to run errands. Mothers with kids in tow headed for an afternoon by the waterfront. The 98 bus hissed to a stop at the curbside, and several passengers stood, grabbing their bags and the hands of their little ones as they shuffled toward the doors. As they filed past the driver, some nodded, some thanked the driver, and others, heads down or earphones in, slipped off the bus without so much as an acknowledgement. As the line of disembarking passengers thinned and the driver prepared to close the doors, he saw movement in the convex safety mirror. A man from the back had stood and begun shuffling toward the front. Tall, dressed in thick, dark clothes that lent him a shadowy presence. Almost missed a stop, the bus driver thought, and held the door. The last leaving passenger was off but the man didn't seem to be in a hurry to follow, slowing as he approached the front. 
he lingered, leaning in toward the driver. How's your day going? he asked, voice deep and raspy, but clear. He seemed normal enough, didn't appear drunk or otherwise out of sorts, but there was something deeply uncomfortable about the man, something off. It's doing good, thanks, the bus driver mumbled, aiming for polite but curt. People were waiting. The guy could hurry up and get off his bus any time now. The man stood for a long moment, as though waiting, anticipating. It won't be for long, he said, voice flat and emotionless. And in a handful of quick, long strides, he was off the bus and disappearing into the crowd. Both puzzled and more than a little unnerved, the bus driver punched the button for the doors, and they slid shut with a hiss and a squeak. There were quiet murmurings and nervous glances from other passengers on the bus who'd overheard the exchange. But as the bus continued along its route, exchanging old passengers for new, the tension began to subside. As the driver turned to head out of Vancouver's core, pulling the big steering wheel in a wide arc with both arms, like a fisherman hauling rope, a sudden wave of darkness crashed around the edges of his vision. His head began to spin, and his stomach lurched. He slammed on the brakes to a chorus of honking horns and squealing tires, and barely had time to turn his head before vomiting in the wastebasket at his side. He heaved violently, gasping and panting, as passengers stood to see what was wrong. He held his head in his hands, and eventually the waves of nausea began to ebb. He sat up in his seat, braced by the arm of a nearby passenger, and looked around at the others on the bus. Some stood, frozen halfway between observation and action, not sure what to do. Others sat rooted in their seats, faces pallid, drained of color. Is everyone else okay? The driver asked breathlessly. Is anyone feeling sick? A muttered, yes, from near the back of the bus. A feeble hand was raised, and then another suddenly clamped to a mouth to hold back sickness of their own. Doing his best to muster energy in his suddenly drained body, the driver managed to pull the bus back over to the curb. He snatched the radio from its cradle and thumbed talk. When paramedics received the call, it was reported as a possible chemical attack, maybe even an act of terrorism. After all, it was 2004, so 9-11 was still fresh in people's minds. The two first responders arrived on scene and began treating the driver and other riders who'd reported not feeling well. But despite their precautions, after just minutes on the scene, both paramedics suddenly began to feel dizzy and nauseous as well. Other passers-by who'd stopped to offer help, too. All patients, though, seemed to recover quickly once they'd left the area around the bus. And once in the hospital, after enduring a battery of tests and procedures, the cause seemed to be unanimous. Nothing 
the same that was found on the bus itself. No amount of searching, scrubbing, testing, cleaning could find any reason why the people on bus 98 would have suddenly fell ill. And the strange man, whose ominous words seemed to kick it all off, never identified, nowhere to be found. I suppose it goes to show that words truly can hold all kinds of power. Speaking of words, I've got several I'd like to share with you tonight. The story we'll hear tonight is the first part of a longer tale that we'll be sharing over the next two weeks, a tale that comes to us from Douglas Smith. Douglas Smith is a multi-award winning Canadian author of speculative fiction, published in 26 languages and 35 countries. His short fiction has appeared in top professional magazines, including Amazing Stories, Interzone, Black Static, Weird Tales, Bane's Universe, Escape Pod, Postscripts, On Spec, and Cicada. His books include the novel The Wolf at the End of the World, the collections Chimeriscope and Impossibilia, and the writer's guide Playing the Short Game, How to Market and Sell Short Fiction. He's currently writing book three of an urban fantasy series with the working title The Dream Rider Trilogy. Douglas is a three-time winner of Canada's Aurora Award and has been a finalist for the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Bookies Award, Canada's juried Sunburst Award, and France's juried Pre-Masterton and Pre-Bob Moraine. Children of the Night, join me for part one of Douglas Smith's Doorways, first published in Postscripts Magazine, UK, 2017. I know death hath ten thousand several doors for men to take their exit. John Webster, Duchess of Malfi. On an island lies a house. In the house lies a box. In the box lies another house. A smaller house, of course, but one that mirrors exactly, quite exactly, the larger structure. In that smaller house, three mice, two males and one female, scurry along a hallway. Following the scent of food, they stop before a doorway, a duplicate of the front entrance in the larger house. The older male, their leader, sniffs at the opening. He knows the house and its rules. He must, to survive. The other two wait. They depend on him, on his decisions. He backs away. Something is different. Something is wrong. The game has changed. Though Rayner was dead, it seemed to Jack that the old man still lived on through his house. Even from a half-mile out on the lake in the early morning sun, the strange island retreat exuded the personality of its late owner. Isolated and eccentric, brooding, 
and uninviting. Jack huddled lower in the back of the fishing boat he'd chartered, while its captain bounced it over the waves towards the island. The boat stank of fish and gasoline, reminding Jack of last summer's disastrous camping trip with Wendy, an attempt to save his marriage by giving them time together away from the rest of the world. But in the end, Wendy had preferred the rest of the world, or at least a part of the world without Jack in it. Jack pulled the collar of his faded denim jacket up against the wind and spray and bitter memories and stared at the house perched atop the island's cliff. The building was a rambling amalgam of random additions and equally random styles of architecture, born of Rayner's strange imagination. A mini Gormengast set down on a lonely rock in Lake Superior. Not so lonely right now, Jack thought, running his eyes over the array of boats lying moored at the island's ramshackle wooden dock and larger ones anchored outside the shallows. As his charter drew nearer to the island, he could see that each boat carried the oval and arrow logo of Gentech. The vultures gather, he thought. According to Rayner's will, the house contained all of Rayner's research, including prototypes, for the projects he'd been working on for the multinational high-tech giant before he died. Jack had assisted on many of those projects, though not in the last year. The firm had tolerated the old man's eccentricities and acerbic personality only because of the long list of patents his genius had fathered. Jack had been one of Rayner's favorites, hired directly out of university after finishing his doctorate in applied mathematics. But Jack had been on a personal services contract with Rayner, so the old man's death had also meant the end of Jack's career with Gentech. My job and my wife, Jack thought. Gray years so far. Wonder what's next. The captain pulled the boat up to the end of the dock, slinging his duffel bag over his shoulder. Jack waved a goodbye and jumped out. After negotiating the slanting dock slick with spray, he crossed a stony beach and made the long climb up rickety wooden stairs to the top of the cliff. A bare rocky expanse flanked by a row of tall pines on the right and left sloped up from the cliff for about a hundred yards to where the house sat. The pines continued past both sides of the house to meet behind it, looming like silent sentinels over the strange structure. In front of the house, a small army of technicians was stringing cables and setting up lights and power generators, bustling with that air of self-important efficiency of which only Gentech employees seemed capable. Jack wasn't concerned they'd already entered the house. Rayner's will had been clear. The house would open solely to Jack's biometrics. That was the only reason Gentech allowed him on the island, and the only reason he'd want to be here. Well. Not the only reason. Scanning the crowd for Wendy, he picked her out, standing beside two black-jacketed security types, Anne Deeks Anderson, Gentech's VP of Marketing. Jack felt his gut churn. He wanted to see Wendy, wanted to see her more than anything, just not with Deke. He looked back down to the beach, but the charter boat had already left, so he was committed. But still he stayed where he was, telling himself he needed to catch his breath after the long climb. He turned his attention back to the house. The building reminded Jack of the architectural equivalent of some vine or fungus slowly spreading itself over the available ground. 
Jack tried to pick out where each addition started and stopped, but his mind kept conjuring up designs for the new house he and Wendy had been planning, back when they were still he and Wendy, and not two names on a divorce settlement. Jack! Jack's attention snapped back to the Gentech crew. Deke was shouting his name and waving an arm, and even from this distance, Jack knew he was wearing a smug smile. Sighing and surrendering himself to his fate, he picked his way over the rocky slope to where Wendy and Deke waited. Deke's black sports jacket, white linen shirt, and tan slacks seemed out of place on the windswept island. Jack, good to see you, Deke said, extending a tanned hand. So you can rub my face in it, Jack thought. Well, fuck you, asshole. But he shook the offered hand, thinking how those two hands, his and Deke's, now shared a common knowledge of Wendy's body. Deke, Jack said, and then turned to Wendy. Hi, Wendy, he said, feeling totally humiliated at knowing he couldn't say hi, cutie, anymore. Wendy's v-neck top and slacks were just tight enough to remind Jack he was sleeping alone. She made a weak attempt to smile, then leaned closer to Deke, a motion so slight Jack would have missed it in any other situation. Why don't you just wrap your fucking legs around him right here? Deke interrupted his thoughts. Jack, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you've come all this way for nothing. Jack felt his guts tighten. I knew it, he thought. Don't try it, Deke. Deke raised a hand. Calm down. We tried to reach you. Rainer's will left half of the house and its contents to me, Jack interrupted. Wendy began to step away, but then Deke nodded in her direction. My legal counsel says that won't hold up in court. Wendy glared at Deke, obviously not wanting to be involved. Jack wondered if she was trying to avoid an argument or just him. She turned to face him. Rainer was under an exclusive contract to Gentech, Jack, she said. Anything he developed during that time is Gentech intellectual property. It wasn't his to give away. I worked on those projects too, Jack replied, struggling to keep his voice level. Under the main contract between Rainer and Gentech, which terminated with Rainer's death, Wendy replied, and for which I'm still owed money. Deke looked shocked. Really? Why, that's terrible, Jack. Send us your invoice, and as soon as I'm back in New York, I'll see that Payables cuts you a check. Rainer worked for years on his own before Gentech. You don't have any claim to those projects, Jack said. Well, once we're inside, we'll just separate those from what belongs to Gentech, Deke said. Yeah, right. And too bad if some end up in your pile. Jack, Wendy began. Ignore him, Wendy, Deke said. It doesn't matter. Deke turned to watch some activity near the front entrance. A black-jacketed security tech was pressing something around the seams of the huge double doors. They're trying to blow the door, Jack thought. Deke took Wendy's arm, and they began walking up the slope towards the house. You won't force it open, Jack called after them. You don't know Gentech, Deke called back over his shoulder. And you don't know Rainer, Jack thought. In its analog of the house, the mouse's whiskers twitch as he sniffs the front door, sensing the coming danger. He herds his younger companions away from the entrance toward the doorway leading from the front hall and deeper into the house itself. But the mouse had been right. The game has changed. 
That door we will not open. Not yet. The mouse huddles with his companions in a far corner of the hall, as far away from the front entrance as possible. The mouse, of course, cannot recognize what he senses as the build-up of an electrical charge, but he remembers this feeling from the past. From when he had different companions, he knows what happens next. Things die. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jack caught up with Deacon Wendy just as Charlie Viles, Gentech security chief, ran up. Barrel-chested and perpetually red-faced, Charlie always looked like he was about to explode. All set, sir, Charlie said, addressing Deke. Deke, Jack began. Don't worry, Jack, Deke said. I'll get one of the boats to run you back to the mainland. Once Gentex inside the house, he turned to Charlie. Let her rip. Nodding, Charlie spoke into his headset. The black-jacketed security tech moved away from the front door and ran to a large control board connected by cables to both the generator and the front door. Everyone seemed to move back, and Jack, out of habit, took a protective step towards Wendy. Black Jacket reached for a large red button on the board. He pressed the button. The gathering dusk turned to midday sun, and Jack went blind as a blast of hot air threw him to the ground. Ozone burned his nose, and a crackling filled his ears as if a giant was playing with bubble wrap with Jack's head inside. Amidst his drowning senses, a thought surfaced. He hadn't heard an explosion. Jack picked himself up and looked around. People were scattered on the ground or just rising. The front entrance to the house appeared untouched. The buzzing in Jack's ears faded, and he could hear sobbing and crying. A woman screamed. People were scrambling away from a smoking pile of... What? Jack realized what it was. It occurred to him he should have added another attribute to Rainer and his house. Isolated and eccentric, yes. Brooding and uninviting, for sure. But dangerous, too. The charred corpse Jack now stared at demonstrated that with a clarity of which the old scientist would have approved. The body lay at the control panel where Black Jacket had stood. Wendy! Panicked, Jack spun around, searching for her. 
He felt his guts unclench when he found her standing unharmed a few feet away. His relief turned to anger as he watched her throw her arms around Deke. The embrace ended suddenly as Charlie grabbed Deke's arm and yanked him around. What the hell happened? You told me this was safe! The security head shoved his even redder face an inch from Deke's nose. Deke pulled free. Back off! Your man must have messed up. Bullshit! Jimmy wouldn't screw up. That place! Charlie thrust a finger at the house. It shot something at him. I saw it. Some sort of beam. It zeroed in on Jimmy. Don't be crazy, Deke snapped. How could it know who? His voice trailed off and his jaw clenched. Someone's in the house. I doubt it, Jack said. They all turned to look at him as if he'd just popped out of the ground. He went on. Rainer would never let someone in that house when he wasn't there. And it's obviously not a place you just walk into. So who killed Jimmy? Charlie growled with a scowl that implied Jack had something to do with it. I'd say Rainer did, or rather, his house did, Jack said. Everyone looked at the house, and some of the crew took a step back. How? Wendy asked. He glared at her as if he resented anyone, but especially Wendy, acknowledging any contribution by Jack. I guessed biometric scanners near the door. Rainer had been working on long-range prototypes. They could have read your man's biosignature, then tracked and targeted him as he moved away from the house. The electrical surge to blow the door triggered a defense system, likely a directed EM pulse of HPMs, high-powered microwaves, from the state of the body and what I felt when it happened. I warned you not to try to force the door. You knew something like this might happen? Charlie growled, advancing on Deke. Deke backed up. Bullshit! He doesn't! He began. The rocky slope lit up like midday, and a voice boomed down from the house. Hello, Deke! You pusillanimous pile of rat excrement! How are you doing? Above the front door, a white stuccoed wall had morphed into a huge video screen, at least twenty feet square. And on that screen, smiling down at them like an animated skull, was the cadaverous countenance of Dr. Lucius Francis Rayner. The late Dr. Lucius Francis Rayner. Deke was the first to break the stunned silence. Jesus, he's alive, he croaked. Jack snorted. Don't be stupid, we saw the death certificate. But Jack felt as shocked as the rest. Rayner seemed to survey the crowd. Then the grin returned and Rayner waved. And Jack, too, with your lovely, if less than loyal, ex-wife. And from her cuddly proximity to old Deke, I'd say she still hasn't figured out she traded down when she switched to that snake. Wendy blushed deep red and muttered something under her breath. Somebody laughed in the crowd, and Deke glared in that direction before turning to Jack. He sees us. How do you explain that? Jack shook his head, trying to think. He's dead, for fuck's sakes. He must have set this up ahead of time. He could have recorded any number of possible scenarios, depending on who might show up. The biometric scanners tell the display system who's out here, even where they're standing, and a program runs the appropriate clip. He could have stored biometrics for every Gentech employee. He certainly had ample chances to get them for the three of us. 
Rainer clapped his hands together and threw back his skeletal head in a croaking laugh. Bet I had Deke going. Wish I could see his face now, seeing all those patents flying out the window, cause old Rainer's still kicking. Rainer wiped tears from his eyes, but I figured Jack spoiled my fun by now, explaining how I probably rigged this. The camera panned back. Rainer sat in a big leather armchair, clad only in a tattered gray dressing gown that hung open to show his sunken chest. Lymphatic cancer, Jack recalled the lawyer saying at the reading of the will. Rainer hadn't let anyone see him in the last months, not even Jack. Rainer's smile ran away like a mouse hiding from the thing that now glinted in the old man's eyes. You've been a bad boy, Deke, trying to screw me again, even after I'm dead. Told you the rules in my will, but I had to try things your way, didn't you? Now you got somebody killed. Now that he was looking for it, Jack thought he could detect a slight flicker or discontinuity in the display before Rainer continued. So here's the deal. Jack opens the doors. The house will then admit exactly three people. No more, no less. Rainer's death's head grin returned. Three very specific people. Jack, Deke, and Wendy. What? Wendy yelped, wide-eyed. Deke! Jack felt a rush of excitement, tinged with fear and confusion. Rainer was helping him, making sure Gentech didn't cut him out. But that house had just killed a man, and Jack was going inside it. And why did Rainer include Wendy? Screw that, Deke snorted. Wire up the door again, Charlie. Charlie looked as if he wanted to wire up Deke, not the door, but Rainer cut off any retort. Oh, and Deke! Any more funny business and my watchdogs might just zero in on you next time. Fry that fucking smug smile off your face once and for all. Deke turned pale and Jack caught several in the crowd nodding as if in agreement with Rainer's sentiments. Deke kept shifting his very worried gaze over different parts of the house until he caught Jack grinning at him. Rainer's voice boomed down from above again. Hmm. I don't see any stampede to the door, folks. He's still scanning us, Jack thought. So I guess I should point out that unless you three get your collective butts in gear and into the house in the next five minutes, I'll blow the entire house to hell, no doubt to join me. Murmurs grew in the crowd. He's bluffing, Deke said, but he looked nervous. Jack shrugged. His scanners tell him where we are, Deke and he's shown what he's capable of. Rainer grinned down at them. Just think, Deke, all those patents, all that money, your career. Rainer wiggled his hands, mimicking a bird flying. All gone bye-bye. Deke, I am not going in there, Wendy began. Wendy, just shut up and let me think, Deke snapped. Don't you tell me to shut up, Wendy shot back, as Jack covered a smirk. Who the hell do you... Rainer's voice cut her off. You might also be interested in knowing that when the house blows, I'll take out the top of this island along with the... The display flickered. Fifty-seven people currently attending my little show. Rainer's face fell. You too, Jocko. Sorry about that. Someone started crying and the noise level in the crowd grew louder. 
A scuffle broke out between some black jackets and a group trying to reach the stairs to the dock and the boats. People are going to get hurt, even if Rainer's bluffing, Jack thought. Let's go, Deke, he said. Deke, Wendy began. Shut up, Deke snapped. Screw you, Jack. That old fart isn't calling the shots anymore. Three minutes, Rainer intoned calmly. Jack grabbed Deke by the arm. Then who the hell do you think is? He shouted. You? All you've done is get a man killed, and now you're going to get us all killed. Charlie Viles decided things for them. Grabbing Deke in an arm lock, Charlie started marching him towards the house, ignoring Deke's squawks of protest. Two other burly black jackets, their faces set as hard as the stone they stood on, motioned Jack and Wendy to follow. Caught in a situation she couldn't control, Wendy paled and clutched Jack's arm, much to his surprise. Having Wendy on his arm again instantly smothered Jack's fears, and he happily followed Charlie and Deke towards the front door. His hand over Wendy's, it reminded him of the day he'd married Wendy, and it led her by the arm to the door of their little bungalow. He just hoped things would end better at this house. Still trapped in the front hall, the older mouse waits before one of the two doors leading deeper into the house. The curtain of energy that forms the doors of the house still will not open, but the invisible barrier allows them to see through. At the first door, the mouse stares into an empty room. He runs over to his companions, where they wait at the second door. Through this door, he can see a pile of grain, seeds, and dried fruit, plus a small basin the mouse knows always contains water. The second room promises a veritable mousy feast. But the mouse prods his companions away from that door and towards the first, and together they sit staring into the empty room, waiting. For the mouse has learned. The house never keeps its promises. Charlie, with Deke still in tow, Jack, Wendy, and their two escorts reached the front door just as Rainer's voice boomed out from above them. Thirty seconds, folks. Oh, I love this part. Twenty-five. Twenty-four. Charlie grabbed Jack and shoved him toward the door. Open it, he snapped. Eighteen. Seventeen. Rainer droned on, like a god counting down to his own little Armageddon. Jack looked at the door. He'd been expecting some sort of biometric scanner. Handprint, retinal image, alpha wave, voice print. Something. Anything. All he could see was a curving brass door handle carved in the shape of an elongated skull set in a large gray metal door. I said open it, Charlie shouted. How? Jack snapped. Ten? Nine? Rainer intoned. How about the fucking handle, Jack? Wendy yelled. I'm going to die, Deke moaned. Five. Four. Holding his breath and half expecting another energy blast, Jack grabbed the handle and pushed. Cold. Electrical tingling. Resistance. Then... The door swung open. Jack stumbled forward and fell into the house. Well, shit, it's about time, Rainer's voice said, sounding much closer this time. Jack got to his feet. He stood in a roughly square entrance hall, maybe forty feet on each side, and empty except for a computer console mounted on a post at standing height in the center of the hall. A dim glow from a high-domed ceiling provided the only light. 
Large black and white ceramic tiles arranged in a checkerboard pattern formed the floor. Some sort of statuary lined the walls to his left and right, but the light was too dim for him to make out details. The wall opposite the entrance held two doorways, but only darkness showed beyond. Jack could hear Deke and Charlie shouting outside. The sound of a scuffle followed, along with a squeal from Wendy, and then both she and Deke stumbled into the room, apparently having been pushed. The door slammed shut behind them, closed by some invisible hand. A flickering of light and color made Jack look up. A giant rainer grinned down at them. The domed ceiling was another display screen. "'Welcome to my parlor,' said the spider to the fly, or flies in this case, Rayner said. "'Won't keep you here any longer than necessary. Deke has people to screw, and Wendy will be part of that, in more ways than one. And Jack?' Rayner's grin died, and he looked almost sad. "'Well, Jocko, you've got a life to rebuild.' Rayner's face disappeared, replaced by a series of displays of equipment diagrams, and computer screens of calculations. This house contains complete research archives for all my projects from the last ten years, Rayner continued, including the biometric tack and HPM weaponry I, uh, demonstrated for you outside. Holy shit, Deke whispered. Not to mention full design specs for my final little toy, Rayner went on. What was his last project? Wendy asked. The old bastard would never tell us. We funded it blind. Deke growled. Nobody knew. He wouldn't even tell me, Jack said, his eyes locked on the screen. Along with a fully working prototype, Rayner's image returned to the screen. He gave a death head grin and leaned back in the chair, and all of it accessible from the control center for this house. An image of what Jack assumed was that very control room appeared. As in the entrance hall, a single computer console mounted on a post stood in the middle of an otherwise empty room. No, Jack corrected himself. Near the top of the screen, three steps led to a raised dais and a small alcove. A box rested on the dais, its top nearly as tall as a man. Now all you three have to do, Rayner's voice droned on, is get to that room. The screen faded to black. A light grew from behind each of the two doorways that lit off the entrance hall in which they now stood. Jack walked over to the one on the right. The door consisted of a plate of heavy glass or clear plastic. He could see no obvious opening mechanism, so he tried pushing on it, but with no effect. The room he could see on the other side appeared to be one Rainer used for a storeroom. A stepladder, stacked cases of canned soups, a portable power generator, piles of dirty clothes, unmarked cartons, and ever so many bulging green garbage bags filled the room in a haphazard, wall-to-wall -wall disarray. Deke and Wendy stood by the other door. Hey! Deke called out. This is it! Walking over, Jack peered through the second door. The room he could see on the other side was indeed the control room Rayner had showed them on the display. This seems, Wendy began, too easy, Deke finished. Not if we can't get in. How does it open, Jack said. As Deke and Wendy poked around the door looking for a switch or trigger, the display screen flickered to life above them again. 
Jack stared at the screen. What appeared to be an equation for a four-factor function began to scroll down the display. What the hell is that? Deke asked, looking up. As line after line continued to appear, Jack sighed. I'd say it's the door handle. He walked over to the computer console. The small screen showed the identical display as the large one above. What are you talking about? Deke asked. I'm betting we have to solve the equation, Jack answered, as the function continued to roll down the screen. Seems kind of long, Wendy said. Although Jack was thinking the same thing, he just shrugged as he tapped at the keyboard on the console. You got any other plans for today? However, after several minutes of paging through well over 200 lines on the display, he was still no further ahead to determining how this could be the key to the door. Uh, what are those? Wendy asked. Jack looked up. Immersed in the equation, he hadn't noticed the room had brightened. He could now clearly see the statuary that lined the two end walls. Jesus, Deke said. It's a giant fucking chess set. Of lawn gnomes, Jack said. Each statue stood between three and six feet tall and resembled a grotesque leering gnome fashioned as a chess piece. The gnomes stood on the black and white ceramic tiles, ready for the start of a game. Lighter pieces along the wall to their left, darker to the right. Three pawns are missing, Wendy said. Jack shook his head. Not anymore. Do the math. Deke's eyes widened. Us? Why does that not sound like good news? As if cued by his words, one of the white pawn gnomes emitted a piercing whine and rolled forward. One arm popped out from its side. At its end, a whirling saw blade. More gnomes shuddered to life on each side and began lurching towards them. From each emerged a different device. Slashing swords, jabbing spears, buzzing tasers. All of them pointed in the direction of Jack, Deke, and Wendy. Deke gave a yelp. Jack stood frozen, mesmerized by the advancing gnomes, until Wendy shouted, Open the door, Jack! Forcing himself to look back to the computer console, Jack moved his now shaking fingers to scroll through the equation again, still with no clue of what might be the key. What you need to do, Jack, Rainer drawled, the calm of his voice surreal above the whine and whir of the approaching killer gnomes is to lose your excess baggage. Stop clinging to what you don't need anymore. You gotta simplify your life, Jocko. The nearest gnome was less than five paces away. Simplify, Jack thought. Simplify the equation, Jack paged back and forth, looking for a pattern, any pattern. Three paces. There! That term looked familiar. He paged back a few screens. Yes! The identical term appeared twice once with a positive sign and later with a negative. Now that he knew what to look for, Jack began highlighting pairs of offsetting terms that netted to zero. One pace. Jack! Wendy shouted in his ear. Both she and Deke crushed up against Jack in front of the console. The nearest gnome drew its mechanical arm back, a spear poised to throw. Jack hit the delete button. The display flickered and then line after line of a much shorter version of the equation flashed down the screen. All of the gnomes lurched to a halt, points and knife edges and saw blades only inches 
from the three human occupants of the room. Jesus! Deke croaked. Deke, get me out of here! Wendy sobbed. Deke took Wendy by the hand, and they maneuvered past the various weapons and the crush of gnomes around them. Yeah, like he saved you, Jack thought. He was about to follow when the computer display changed. He blinked. The screen now showed a calendar view of a date book for May of two years ago. Appointments crammed the month, but an identical entry from Monday to Friday in the third week was flashing. Out of town, Vancouver, at the top of the page. Wendy's name showed as the date book owner. The screen went black. What the fuck? Jack thought. Deacon Wendy once again stood in front of the doorway, showing the control room. Hey, she called. The door's open. Then she added, I think. Snaking his way through the robots, Jack walked to the door. The solid clear barrier was gone, but a shimmering curtain of light remained. So now what? Deke asked, as if this latest puzzle was Jack's fault. Jack pulled a comb from his pocket and inserted one end into the curtain. He heard a low crackling sound, and the comb trembled slightly, but nothing else happened. Retracting the comb, he checked the end. It seemed unchanged. So, with a sigh of resignation, he extended a finger to touch the shimmering light. He felt a mild electric current for a heartbeat, then nothing. He pushed his hand through to the wrist. Well, no smell of barbecued flesh, anyway, Deke said. Jack withdrew his hand and looked at it clenching and unclenching it as he did so. He shrugged. Seems fine. So what is it? Wendy asked. I've no idea, Jack said. Behind them, a familiar whining noise began. They all spun around. The gnomes were waking again, and as each robot animated itself, it immediately began advancing on Jack, Deke, and Wendy. Rainer flickered to life again on the domed screen above. Decision time, children. Three of them looked at each other and then turned to the curtain. Fuck it, Jack thought. He stepped through, Deacon Wendy on his heels. It didn't occur to Jack until he was stepping forward that when he had stuck his hand through the curtain, he hadn't seen it emerge on the other side. That was part one of Douglas Smith's Doorways, as read by Dan Gerzinski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade, and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox, as well as Tales to Terrify, and has just finished narrating his eighth audiobook. Well done. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Don't forget about our Flash Contest. Visit TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest for details and to enter. And if you haven't already, I encourage you to head over and have a look at our Patreon page, Patreon.com slash TalesToTerrify, and have a look at all of the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content, 
to shoutouts and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app? Ratings and reviews are an easy way that you can help us to spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we explore strange, dark worlds with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.